Sin acknowledges and pays respects to the owners of the land of which the House of Sin and Studio stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin also acknowledges and pays respects to the elders and traditional owners of the land of which our content reaches, as well as the radio stations from which we broadcast across the country. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. Why do we want to play this? When do we want to I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. Represent. Represent. You're listening to Represent. Welcome to Represent on Sin Nation. We are Sin Media's flagship political discussion program where we explore current affairs and politics in every sense of the word. You're listening to Oscar, Ashmal, Gianni and Katie. We are all very saddened to hear about the news from Christchurch yesterday and of the deaths of 49 innocent people in what was a terror attack. Coming up in the next hour, we'll be talking about the youth strike for the climate yesterday, the climate policy within the Liberal National Coalition, the New South Wales election on March the 23rd, and the sentencing of George Pell. Uh, But first we have Old Man by Stella Donnelly. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. So the first thing we'd like to discuss today is yesterday's school strike for climate. Uh, So I think that saw about 20,000 high school students and primary school students and children and all their families and supporters uh, leave school to protest government inaction on climate change. So there were estimated to be about 20,000 students here in Melbourne and around 150,000 Um, students in total across Australia, which is actually the biggest civil disobedience ever recorded in this country. And um, there are actually thousands and thousands more students around the world in over 100 different countries. Um, And we have a clip from The Guardian, which is of some of the strikes. no idea why we're striking then like what on earth you must be utter idiots if you're wondering why we're striking like look around you like look at the climate charge look at the amount of co2 in our atmosphere about it so we're taking to the streets to fight for our futures 
and for those who are suffering from the consequences of climate change today. So that clip was from The Guardian and that's uh, footage of strikes around the world. Um, so last November was the first school strike for climate in Australia, organised mainly by a group of students from Castlemaine here in Victoria. Um, and now this was a second global workout, um, which was yesterday, March 15th. And I think there were 25 sites across Australia where marches were planned, but students were leaving school in towns and cities all over the country. Um, and obviously it's... Um, I find it very inspiring and especially when you consider that Greta Thunberg, the school student in Sweden who kind of inspired um, this movement of skipping school to send a message to governments, um, businesses and politicians, uh, she has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. So I think she was um, sitting outside the um, parliament in Stockholm uh, every day until she got to speak with um, her country's leaders and now she's spoken um, all around the world and she's gotten to go to the UN and yeah she's just been nominated for a Nobel Prize. Um, so I thought it could be interesting to see what you guys think about the role that climate change is going to play in the federal election in about a month and a half because you know obviously young people are sick of it, old people are sick of it, by it I mean our government not doing much to counter it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, what do you think climate change, what role do you think climate change concern is going to play in May? I mean, obviously there's currently um, a, there's currently a, kind of, there's obviously a lot of division in the coalition, which is kind of preventing it from uh, taking that much action, uh, because obviously there's currently the dispute about whether, well, the current, like, focus has been on, um, whether the government should uh, subsidise uh, coal uh, power stations. Um, and it's also been on the Adani coal mine, and um, that was also quite prominent at the strike, was the Stop Adani uh, campaign. Mm, yes, I went to a Stop Adani march um, about two months ago now in the CBD in Melbourne as well, and it wasn't quite as big a turnout as the school strike, but there were still lots of people there. And um, something that I definitely noticed when I went to that particular march was the big um, mix of people who had come there. So there were elderly people, young families, people walking with their babies, some people had brought their dogs, and it wasn't the kind of image of that gets conjured up about the activists and like the protester when you think that this is really an issue that affects all of us and is currently already affecting all of us so I think that it's something that people can really unite together to stand up against. Yeah well, I suppose that's something that is different about a general climate strike as compared to a specific uh, issue like Adani. Um, the strike we had yesterday was more of an expression of anger and dissatisfaction than a response to a very specific issue. It was a more broad, democratic uh, attack on the inaction of the global governments. So I suppose in that way, um, it isn't a traditional protest. It's not a group of uh, activists. It's the population expressing themselves in a very clear way. 
I think the fact that it is normal school students who are going and doing such an action make, gives it even more importance. Uh, the fact that they're recognizing that this is going to affect their future and you know, co corporations taking and the governments taking actions for themselves is going to leave such a path, such a strenuous path for them 40 years down the line. And maybe this is the best way of appro approaching climate change and bringing attention to it. Because these are the people who are going to be affected in 40 to 50 years. I think, yeah, well, even beyond that, I think we're already all starting to be affected by it now. And then yeah. you're right that... Um, people who are even just a little bit younger than us like um even people who are oscar's age um you're going to have a few more years here than we are and let, i hope that they're good ones where we're not all on fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah um what's also been interesting is the kind of politicians response uh to this um obviously we saw uh well, pretty much the only politician to speak out in favour was uh, the opposition leader, Michael Foley. Um, Scott Morrison didn't really have that much to say this time about it. Uh, Even though he had lots to say about it last time in November. Yeah, um, but the education minister said that he would meet with the students outside of school hours at the appropriate time. Mm. Yeah, and I heard that um, some students from MLC, which is in Kew, so that's in the electorate of Kuyong, had actually met with Josh Frydenberg. Um, so at least I suppose he met with them, but they said that he kind of gave them a, I don't know, kind of a, I think the words they used was a wet blanket, like a response, but I guess he didn't really seem um, ready to commit to anything, even though he acknowledged climate change. Yeah. I do think it must be frustrating for these kids, especially living in such a developed country like Australia, and you see other European states and the United States of America to an extent, not anymore, start taking such positive steps towards climate change. And in Australia, we are still struggling to make sure our parties acknowledge it exists and our pr prime minister and the government acknowledges it exists. While, you know, in Germany, they're hoping to shut down all coal plants by 2030. France it has shut down 50% of coal plants. And here we're debating if coal is still uh, economic, uh, um, environmentally viable and if we do need to address climate change at all. I know, um, to me, seems quite unbelievable. But uh, we actually will be talking more about our current government's climate policy uh, when we come back. We're going to go to a song now. This is Something in the Water by Harvey Sutherland and Jace XL. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. That was Something in the Water by Harvey Sutherland and Jace XL. Uh, we're going to be talking about the current climate policy of the Liberal National Coalition, starting with uh, Prime Minister Morrison's extension of the Emissions Reduction Fund. So this was a policy introduced under the Abbott government. The Emissions Reduction Fund supports Australian businesses, farmers and land managers in taking practical actions to reduce emissions and improve the environment. Um, this is a direct quote from the Department of Environment and Energy. Um, uh, Prime Minister Morrison announced that a further $2 billion would be added in a Climate Solutions Fund, which is a continuation of the 
$1.55 billion that Abbott announced in 2014. Uh, the system of the ERF works by allowing companies to earn carbon credits by introducing emissions reduce, reduction practices or technology into their operations. These credits can then be sold back to the government or to other companies. Uh, so the criticism of the ERF is it's based, it's essentially voluntary and doesn't actually require companies to reduce their emissions. Uh, it merely foots the bill for doing so. Um, so the other thing that happened recently was a coal rebellion within the Queensland Nationals. Um, so the coalition was divided on the issue of increasing the amount of coal-fired power plants in Australia and if the government would be underwriting the construction of new plants if re-elected. So the National Party, particularly the Queensland branch, has pressured the government to adopt a more pro-coal stance, which culminated last week with Barnaby Joyce, previous leader of the National Party and the self-titled elected deputy prime minister, <laughs> also pushing for the underwriting of coal power plants. Um, so the government has stated that uh, Australia is on track to meet its 2030 emissions reduction target of 26 to 28% of the 2005 levels, despite a consistent rise in emissions. The Climate Council's Professor Will Steffen claims that this could be due to the use of past accounting systems in calculating the credit gained from completing the Kyoto, uh, Kyoto targets, which he's described as pathetically weak. So essentially what the government's calculations for the Paris Agreement involve is including the Kyoto targets in the Paris goals in order to claim credit for reaching those targets, which were viewed as inadequate, thus uh, meaning that Australia may not be reaching its Paris 2030 targets. Um, mm. So what do you guys think? Should uh, Australia receive credit for a pathetically weak reaching a pathetically weak target? Or is that not okay? Well, I personally don't think so. And there's just something um, that I heard on ABC Radio National the other day um, when they were talking about Bridget McKenzie, um, who is the deputy leader of the Nationals, and then Michael McCormack, who now is the leader and therefore, you know, deputy um, prime minister. Um, and Barnaby Joyce was talking about... So basically, um, as we are starting to see more and more, um, the Liberal Party, especially those that hold kind of more sort of more socially progressive inner city seats are getting really worried about coal because um, voters are worried about climate change and their constituencies aren't probably um, not in favour of new coal-fired power plants. Um, and then uh, the national, some of the nationals, like you said, are calling for, yes, we need more coal and we need new coal-fired power plants. And then Barnaby Joyce said, you know, as in the Nationals, we're not married to the Liberal Party, then Michael McCormack, who is now the leader of the Nationals, said, I think I know more than Barnaby about how to make a marriage work. <laughs> One, that's an epic roast. And yeah. <laughs> uh, two, I think Barnaby Joyce has kind of been like... Uh, He's, he's been quite provocative recently with regards to the uh, any possible leadership uh, challenge within the Nationals. You know, his position has basically been, oh yeah, I'm not going to bring one up, but I'll support one to the end of Earth if it, if it comes up. Yeah, I know. So he's like, if the seat was vacated, 
hint, hint, like I would want to be the leader again. But yeah, the deputy leader, um, Bridget McKenzie, she's just come out and said that um, the National Party support Michael McCormack as their leader. Yeah, it doesn't look like... It looks like they've been trying to, you know, do a... You know, they've been trying to kind of sweep up, sweep under the rug any concerns about the mm. leadership, especially as, you know... The, the, you don't want to... The, the government doesn't want to see a continuation of the um, internal climate struggle. Yeah. Uh, like, a very public display of that. Yeah, and Matt Canavan also... Um I guess he's a, a um, I don't think he's the Minister for Resources anymore, Matt Canavan. Um, no, I think he got... He might, I think he might be Energy Minister now. Um, let me just check. But anyway, he came, has kind of come out of the woodwork because he'd been quiet for a while and um, he said that, yes, we do need more coal. But he's always been very... Um, at least to my understanding, he's always been very pro-coal and also kind of um, pits the north against the, th- the south, as in Australia. And, you know, those southerners don't understand what's good for workers and good for everyday families in Queensland. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, uh, coal rebellion does seem to be fairly isolated and it's mostly Queensland nationals that are supporting it. Yeah, and Angus well, Taylor is actually um, the energy minister of Australia now. But you would be forgiven for not knowing that because he only became it um, last year. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it was, I'm pretty sure Matt Canavan also made some pretty, uh, I would call, I don't know, I, I guess I would describe them as quite inflammatory remarks about the, um, student climate, uh, protests last year. He, um, I think it was Matt Canavan that said this, um, but he, uh, that they were learning, that the only thing they were learning is how to line up for the doll. <laughs> Oh, I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that too. <laughs> and yeah, I actually spoke with one of the students from Castlemaine who organised, has played a big part in organising the School Strike for Climate and was one of the um, original organisers of the march in November. And um, I think that he was a very intelligent and um, confident young person and I actually found talking with him very inspiring and I don't think that... Um, to my mind, any of the kids that I know who went on that strike, I think that lining up for the door line is the last thing they're going to be doing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, but apparently he's minister for resources, so yeah, and Northern Australia. We've got so much coal, we just have to use it. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think this does. I think it does speak to. I mean, from my understanding, um, a lot of the controversy also centres around a proposal for uh, a coal power station uh, in New South Wales and whether the government uh, should subsidise such power station. And I think the Greens have threatened to start another uh, so-called climate war if, you know, with large acts of civil disobedience, if if it did go ahead. Yeah, well, that will be um, something interesting to keep an eye on um, in the New South Wales election results next week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, language warning on this next one. We've got Clumsy Love by Thelma Plum coming up. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. 
That was Clumsy Love by Thelma Plum. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Uh, so next week is going to see the New South Wales uh, elections happen, and we will, of course, have um, some coverage next week of that. Uh, but we want to talk about some issues that we think uh, are going to be important in this uh, up- in the upcoming election. So well, the first one that's got quite a lot of controversy lately is the stadium uh is the stadium upgrade. So there's two main stadiums in uh, New South Wales, the Allianz Stadium and the ANZ Stadiums, because uh, sponsorships. Um, and the government and the government was planning to demolish uh, Allianz and refurbish ANZ, from my understanding. Um, but it has, uh, but it's going ahead to refurbish. I think it's ANZ, the ANZ Stadium, and. This has caused quite a lot of controversy because, uh, you know, uh, this week the environmental groups lost, maybe it was last week, uh, lost an injunction uh, to try and stop the proposed uh, stadium from going ahead in the Land and Environment Court in New South Wales. Uh, There is currently an appeal, but we'll see how that goes. Um, But the the, um, opposition... Uh, has promised to stop it and sack the entire sports and uh, the entire sports and cricket uh, trust board, uh, which includes Alan Jones, and he, in fact, said this on Alan Jones' show. Interestingly. Um, So what do we think of that? Um, Well, actually, on my way here today, I read um, in the Sydney Morning Herald um, that the Allianz Stadium is going to be destroyed. Ah. Um, and so I think that might... Uh, the, um, I think that that just came out yesterday afternoon, that article. So, um, yeah, Local Democracy Matters, the group, which the one you were talking about, I think that's what it's called, and they're backed by the Greens. Um, they actually had uh, their legal challenge against the Bericlean government's plans to demolish the stadium thrown out of the New South Wales Land yeah. and Environment Court. Um yeah, and there's some footage you can see, which is showing down, sh- sorry, showing the um, machinery beginning to tear down the walls. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they it said all members of the court um, are of the view that the appeal should be dismissed, but then um, a state Greens MP, David Shoebridge, said that Gladys Bricklin will be known as the wrecking ball of New South Wales politics. Yeah, and... Um Another issue that's uh, going to play quite a interesting factor in the election is uh, healthcare, um, because New South Wales has an aging population, um, and so the um, current uh, the current government has promised to uh, build or upgrade upgrade ninety uh, twenty nine hospitals. Uh, and health facilities, and Labor plans to introduce mandatory n- nursing to patient ratios. S- what do we think of man- of um, nursing to patient ratios? I know the v- it's also come up in the aged care debate. Yeah. Quite a bit. Well, I think it's a much better policy than the uh, introduction of new hospitals because I think the issue isn't that. I mean, it might also be that there aren't enough hospitals, but it's that they're under, drastically understaffed and the waiting times are horrendous. 
Um, I think I also heard that the New South Wales Liberals did build one of the promised 29 hospitals in uh, Sydney's North Shore, which is one of the wealthiest areas of Sydney and the one that pretty much least needed a hospital. Uh, um, another interesting thing is that uh, during the campaign launch, uh, uh, Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison both attended their respective campaign launches, but... Um, Bill Sh- Bill Shorten spoke at his, but Scott Morrison just sat down and listened for the whole time, uh, which I think it's going to be interesting to see whether it's a signal because uh, the deputy premier has been quite vocal that he, uh, he thinks that the Canberra uh, uh, politics uh, is hurting the Liberals' chances of winning. Mm. Well, I yeah, I don't think it helped in the state election in Victoria last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um, yeah, I haven't actually watched the sh- um, Bill Shorten's speech there, but um, that's interesting that Scott Morrison didn't say anything to in- kind of at the launch publicly endorse Gladys. Yeah. Uh, there's also education. Uh, uh, Labor's promised to spend $1.6 billion on education on um, school infrastructure, and the Coalition will spend $2 billion to hire... Uh, five thousand teachers. Was that one point six billion from Labor or seven point six? I think it was seven. Uh, let me check. Um, I have to. Yeah, I have to check that. Okay. Um, I don't know. The first thing that kind of jumps out at me is that they kind of have the policy for health in reverse. So when it comes to health, Liberals have promised the um, infrastructure developments or upgrade, whereas Labor are uh, planning on having more nurses. But then for education, Labor is spending on infrastructure and the Coalition is spending money on more pro- professionals. Yeah. So I don't know. That's the first thing that jumps out at me about it. I think with uh, the recent elections, the co- elections coming up, um, the Gladys's. Uh, policy regarding pill testing and festivals might play a big role, especially because it's just been in the news. And I feel like with all these festivals being very vocal and artists like Peking Duck coming out and openly criticizing the New South Wales government and their policies regarding uh, festivals, festival security and pill testing, how big of a role that'll play, especially considering it does play a big role in the economy in Byron Bay and New South Wales as a whole and ha- taking such a negative response and having not only Australia but international artists and international festival goers ha- now pay attention to New South Wales politics. Yeah, it's um, it might drive up the independent vote because uh, Labour has kind of taken an equally stance view when it comes to pill testing uh, in that it's a no. Um, and Labour has also said that uh, they will for that they want to f- essentially force high risk festivals out of the state. Mm. Um. Well, I think uh, the New South Wales government pulled. A, oh, I don't know if it was the government, it might have just been the police force pulled a pretty dirty move a couple of months ago when they, I think they charged the festival two hundred thousand dollars almost just a week before it began to have the police attend. Yeah, that yeah. was just last month or something, was wasn't it? it? Hillsong. No, uh, I don't know. Hillsong, <laughs> Hillsong's actually um <laughs> a church. Yeah, yeah, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the singing, dancing church. Um, but I think that uh, whatever happens next week, it's definitely going to be interesting. 
that is all we have time for. Uh, the next song uh, might contain strong language. It'll be Almeida by so- Solange. Solange. <laughs> uh, you're listening for. That was Almeida by Solange and Playboy Cardi. We will now talk about George Bell's sentencing. Um, and we'd just like to um, say that if you uh, feel affected by this topic, we know it's a sensitive one. Um, please don't forget that you can always call Beyond Blue at 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 131114. There's also the National Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Counselling Service, which is at 1800 RESPECT. In one of Australia's most uh, the biggest uh, news topics in the past couple of years, dominating the newspapers and headlines, has finally come to an end this week, with Cardinal George Pell being sentenced to six years in jail after being convicted of sexually abusing two 13-year-old choir boys in 1996. The former Vatican treasurer, aged 77, was handed a non-parole period of three years and eight months by the judge, who described his offending as brazen and forceful and breathtakingly arrogant because he believed the victims would never complain. This sentence means he may spend at least three years and eight months in jail with reports believing that the sentence was so short because they wouldn't didn't believe Pell will survive the next coming few years in jail. He is the most senior member of the Catholic Church to be convicted and jailed for child sexual abuse. So, what do you guys think about the result and the entire trial? It was a bit of a media circus, I, th- I feel, and has ended up with Pell behind bars. Yeah, obviously there has been a lot of uh, media um, attention on the case, uh, even with the suppression orders. Um, I think I think it was an appropriate sentence, given, well, given one, that the horrendous nature of the crimes which he was convicted of and given uh, his age. Uh, But also there's the case of the journalists who have been threatened with uh, contempt of court for for publishing information about the case with the suppression order in place. Uh, Obviously the suppression order in the case was quite broad so it prohibited media organisations from publishing anything to do with the case, including the fact that there was a suppression order in place. Yeah, well, I remember um, late last year uh, where there were all those articles, and I think the Herald Sun just had, like, a black cover on the front page with yeah. the question mark, and all these things like, we know this big thing that's happened, but we can't tell you. Yeah, so they're one of the organisations that are threatened with, or that have been threatened with contempt of court. Uh, the DPP, uh, ha- however, is... Uh, will not be pursuing uh, contempt of court cases against the ABC and Crikey, despite them being initially uh, threatened. Um, but the prosecutor's approach to this has also been quite uh, controversial uh, because the um, b- because the because they sent a lot of letters, uh, including in some cases to people who were on maternity leave or otherwise just not at work or had nothing to do with the reporting of George Pell. Uh, so what do we think? Um, well, I think the suppression order stuff is all quite complicated because, um, as the media have said here, you know, when they were all 
uh, finding out about the conviction and couldn't report on anything. Um, outlets overseas were reporting on it. So I think that Australia actually has quite um, actually really strict laws when it comes to the media compared with other places. Well, yeah. Um, and Victoria in particular. Victoria, I think it was issues like almost twice as many suppression orders. Yeah, I heard that as, too. As uh, New South Wales, despite it having a larger criminal jurisdiction. Um, which, uh, so from my understanding, there's also some reviews uh, that are taking place into the use of suppression orders in cases like this. This will be interesting to see what happens. I, th I think so too. But I think going back to the Pell case, looking back in a couple of years, we're going to see a lot of issues with the way it was handled in the courts itself. Like uh, Pell's uh, prosecution did tr are trying to appeal the case and there were um, a lot of fallacies there. There was a lot of issue around the media circus and even the judge's way of handing down the decision has been criticized by even Walid Ali. So I think um, looking back on it, we're going to see, I feel like this might be a watershed moment. Either this is the start of the Catholic Church in at least Australia being held accountable for the actions or this is one blip and we look at how the rule of law failed the two 13-year-olds and mistrials and further issues. Well, obviously this case is going to be heard in the uh, Court of Appeal uh, in June, so this is certainly... the. George's case is, George Pell's case is certainly not going away anytime soon uh, from mm. the spectre of attention. Yeah. And um, Justice Peter Kidd um, actually said that you can read his full sentencing uh, on the ABC. Actually, something on that which was um, unusual is that they televised the whole yeah. sentencing live, which um, seemed a bit unorthodox. Yeah, it was, and uh, Pell's lawyers... Uh, tried to protest, arguing that it essentially constituted punishment in and of itself. Yeah. Pell's prosecution themselves were pretty unorthodox. They tried to use the PowerPoint slides with videos to present their case, and then the judge shut it down because the defense said it was... Oh, so, uh, sorry, Pell's... Uh, defense. Yeah, Pell's defense tried to use PowerPoint slides, and Pell's prosecution... Uh, objected because they said it was making a mockery of the legal system and it looked like a Pac-Man game. So the whole case has been unorthodox from the start, I think. Mm. And um, actually, George Pell's uh, lawyer, his QC, Robert Richter, is not going to be um, representing him in the Court of Appeal in June because he yeah. said he's become too emotionally invested. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, he also caught a lot of controversy for describing, for the way he described... To as plain vanilla. Yeah. From um, advocacy groups, and he did apologise. Yeah, I saw that. that. Um, yes. This well, he also. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to say this has this is such an emotional and sensitive topic of the nature it is in. So, I wonder if moving forward there will be more, if it is going to stay as front and callous as it has been. I feel like there's. Uh, to an extent, for especially considering the victim's perspective, the media and the public haven't given them much respect. It has all been focused on George Bell. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I think uh, the uh, victim um, released a statement um, 
I think saying that they were uh, disappointed with the amount of time Pell had been sentenced to and then um, the victim's uh, defendant um, said that they would respectfully remind the media um, the, you know of the um, codes of conduct such as that you can't ever publish a victim of a sexual crime's name yeah um, it's, it's been yeah really controversial but at the end of the day I didn't honestly expect Pell to get sentenced at all I didn't expect him to get served jail time so I think to an extent it is a big victory especially for the victims of the institutionalized nature of pedophi- the pedophilia rings in the Catholic Church however mm. it goes on to say if this will have massive effects and if it will result in the Catholic Church instituting changes within the organization because I, I remember reading an article on uh, I think it was one of the more left-leaning websites about how they were worried that the Catholic Church has started to scapegoat George Pell and made him seem like the one orchestrator. Yeah, well, um, uh, Peter Kidd, uh, the justice, he actually said um, that George, this is part from the sentencing um, to George Pell, you are not to be made a scapegoat for any failings or perceived failings of the Catholic Church. And that um, he acknowledged acknowledges the trauma that other victims have gone through um, and he recognises that victims do seek justice but it can only be justice if it is done with accordance in the rule of law. So at least from a legal point of view, um, George Pell isn't technically being made a scapegoat um, for sexual crimes in the Catholic Church but it'll be interesting to see if it sets kind of like an unofficial precedent um, and for other victims who want to come forward. Yeah, I believe, um, I think one of the other things he said is that the Catholic Church is not on trial here. Yeah. Um, but, so... It might be, though, in the, um, court of public opinion. Yeah. The the church is on trial. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll have to see how the Pope and the institution responds to such an important figure being taken down. Yeah, well, obviously their response has been to wait for the appeal to happen. And see what happens. It's obviously going to go ahead in June. Um, so we'll see what happens then. Um, that's probably just about all we have time for today. I'd um, just like to remind listeners that um, if you feel you need to, you can always call um, Lifeline at 13 11 14 or the National Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Counselling Service at um, 1-800-RESPECT. Um, so thanks for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Katie. Oscar. Ashmal. Um, you can keep up to date and let us know what you thought of the show on our socials. Find us at SinRepresent on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to hear this episode again or catch up of, on any of our old episodes, you can find our podcast on Omni at Represent. And remember to, to stay, stay political. political. <laughs>